Hello and welcome to episode 94 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. A belated episode, it has to be said, but good to be back in your ears and with some highly nutritious golf chat to boot. I'm Rod Murray and I've been extremely busy these past few weeks, so apologies for the lack of episodes. However, we should now be back on track, starting with today's episode, where we're going to delve into the world of professional golf, but as is so often the case with this program, from a side of the professional game that very few fans ever give a thought to. Now, when most of us think of touring professional golf, we think about Tiger and Rory and Minji and Lydia and private jets and island holidays and fancy cars and all the rest of it. And while most fans know deep down that that's only a small percentage of those who play for a living that get to live that way, we really think about it much more deeply. But for those who ply their trade on the world's fairways without that kind of profile, there's often a feeling that they are without a voice in the way their own industry is run. Enter at least in this part of the world, the Oceania Golf Players Association, a group modelled on players' leagues in other sports, looking to find a voice in how the professional game is conducted here in Australia. Last week, I sat down with regular co-host Adrian Logue, Golf Australia magazine deputy editor Jimmy Emanuel, and one of the founders of this new organisation, reigning New South Wales Open and Moonar Lynx champion Bryden McPherson, to find out what it was all about. Not the best marketing this name, Bryden. Oh... GPA, OPG, Oceania. OGPA. It's like o- an 80s rock group. <laughs> it's uh, like 80s rap. A, 80s rapper group. It's like an, uh, the back nine boys. <laughs> <laughs> Brian McPherson, welcome. Tell us, what are you up to? What is this uh, What is this group, this band of merry golfers? We are the first ever, as far as I understand, Players Association, True Players Association in professional golf. Um just like in all the other sports, we are here to represent the collective interests of the players in relations with the tour or league or what that they play on because we believe that they deserve uh, a stronger voice. Yeah. H- historically, the big appeal of golf for golfers, for professional golfers, has been this independent contractor, and we're hearing loads about this, and we'll get into these disruptor leagues and what that might mean for what you're doing as the discussion goes on. That's a fairly significant change that you're kind of trying to bring there, isn't it? it? And I imagine that you yourself was one of those who found the idea of being your own boss is one of the great appeals of being a professional golfer. Absolutely. Look, uh, there's no – to my understanding, look, I'm not a lawyer, so you're going to hear me say to my understanding a lot. Um, but Because <laughs> you're sort of a lawyer and you know that you need to say to my understanding, like allegedly, you're just not sure where you need to use it exactly. <laughs> I have been, uh, I've been instructed. Um, <laughs> look, independent contractors are not – uh, barred from forming associations when it comes to uh, improving their working conditions. Look, that we are not a union by definition because we're not employees. Um, what we want is we want to be treated like independent contractors all the time. And um, we want the right to be able to bargain as a group of, co- of independent contractors. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like uh, there is a bit of, of movement going on in this space as well as a bit of movement with Uber. Um, and other, you know, other examples of independent contractors uh, coming together to improve improve the situation for everybody, um, because it's not fundamentally about simply improving things just for us. It's about improving things for everybody. Mm. Historically, obviously, that whole independent contractor thing and whatnot. What you're forming is more like a trade association, I guess, for like a professional group, that kind of thing. And you say not a union. 
Yeah, I guess it's it's the players' association. Right. Um, some players' associations are formed as unions, and other ones are formed as players' associations. Um, we are an association whose sole purpose is to represent the collective interests of the players. Um, so, in function, you know, it'll be similar to a players' union, um, but legally speaking, you know, seeing as we're not employees, uh, it will be it will be legally a little bit different. Yeah. From the outside, conditions actually look pretty good, Brighton. Brighton, for a golf fan, <laughs> professional well, golf looks yeah, pretty look, bloody rosy. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not here to throw criticism in anyone's direction. I think there's definitely an uptick happening at the moment um, with uh, Australian golf is ticking up. Uh, certainly, outside of the professional game, it is experiencing some kind of boom that we haven't seen in quite a while. Um, but I think if we look over a longer term. Uh, picture and we can look uh, a little, extrapolate out a little bit more we can see that things haven't been particularly healthy and players haven't been particularly happy for a long time Jimmy you wrote a pretty impressive piece for Golf Australia magazine about this and you chatted to Bryden and various others and you've been around professional golf in various capacities for a long time what's your take on what Bryden's outlining here it's definitely the most organised sort of a formation of players I've seen. As he says, players not being happy necessarily is nothing new. I've been a- it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the given state, isn't it, if you're a professional <laughs> yeah. golfer, You can never be happy. Yeah, in the story it sort of says to be a professional golfer, you have to be a very insular, you know, self-focused person. That's, that's sort of a requirement as to get into the field. And so players often think they don't get things go their way that affect how they make a living, which is understandable, but it's not always necessarily correct. But this is clearly a, a groundswell of enough of it to do something serious about it. And and speaking with Bryden and other members of the board, Whitney Hillier and, and Joe Sponholtz, it's very impressive what they've done mm. to get together and how they've put everything together. And I think Bryden mentions... Australian golf's in a better spot. There's more tournaments. You know, we saw an announcement this week about the WPGA Championship and there's been other things. I think a part of that is owed to the guys in the OGPA. Not They haven't been directly credited with it, but... But the fright they've given the they've existing given, bodies. They've given the bodies a, a fair fright yeah. and that's the feedback I get from other players not on the board of the OGPA that they feel like they're being listened to more in recent times. So, yeah, it's it's very interesting from someone who covers professional golf in this country for a living. It's um, It'll be interesting to see how it develops because at this stage, what these guys are putting forward is, is not getting a conversation started with the organising body. So where that goes is the interesting part of this now. Yeah, we might come to a bit of that later. Of course, most fans, when they think of professional golf, Bride, and they think Greg Norman, Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, private jets, island holidays, maybe just buying an island for the week rather than having to rent it, that kind of thing. We know that's not the reality for the bulk of people who play professional golf, but what sorts of things are you kind of looking for? Some fans might be surprised at just what a dog-eat-dog and brutal financial proposition pursuing a professional golf career is. Yeah, sure. It's, look, it's not easy, uh, It's certain, but it's not a coal mine either. Um, it's we, we have a pretty amazing life, but it comes with unique challenges. Um, and one of those challenges is in our sport, there is no function for players to have any kind of organised say on the improvement or the workings of the tours that they play on. Um, and I, it's important that I point out that there are mechanisms on the tours for getting players' input, like 
tournament councils and players councils and things like that. But as far as the structure of um, players and uh, administrators, players and management being separate and having to negotiate, that doesn't exist. Um, and what that leads you down is it, it lets the the dog-eat-dog uh, nature of golf, it gets it gets exaggerated. And we end up in the, at the point where people who are the 50th best player on the Australian tour, um, who, you know, I've been saying are probably as equally qualified as an entry-level worker in the fast food industry, um, they're making half as much as someone who is uh, working at McDonald's. And that to me seems like that is that that to me shows where the Australian golf sits in our economy in Australia and it's not sitting in the right place. Like you've been big on these commie ideas for a while, haven't you? <laughs> we should take from the top and this Robin Hood notion, take from the top and give to the bottom. Is what Bryden's outlying there, outlying there, um, a worthy kind of goal or ideal? Isn't it quite simply professional sport is the ultimate capitalist society. You either achieve or you don't. That's the very simple premise. Yes. I, that said, I think if you're the 50th best professional golfer in Australia, you're really, really, really good at professional golf. Like, And there's not a lot separating you from the top 10. Uh, it's... It's, it's a very, magazine's written about what's separating you from the top 10, the 1% isn't the I mean, point one, this and that. They're yeah. very small margins, but yeah. and, and those people have the opportunity to take that next step and improve to get into a top 10 situation and, and make a better living. Um, I just think if you're the 50th best at anything in this country, you should be able to make a, a living. Doing <laughs> yeah. that thing. Like 50th best is really bloody good. Mm. Like You don't see that at your club. Every Saturday in your in your Saturday stable for comp. <laughs> if you think fiftieth best rugby league or AFL player in the country, yep. they're in the top quarter of earnings in that sport, probably. Yep. And that's that's compare that money to what the fiftieth mm. best golf professional makes. But flip it to tennis, and the numbers are frightening. Yeah, three hundredth best in the world. I saw somebody posted a check on Twitter the other day. They took a photo for fifty eight cents or something. They'd won yeah. at well, a tournament. Somewhere. Flip it to anything, not sports. Like the fiftieth best. Mm. Podcaster in Australia is probably completely broke, but the 50th best- Yeah, I'm actually not doing that well. You're quite right. <laughs> the 50th best software developer in Australia would be ma- making very healthy six figures, like high, very high six figures. Yeah, well, there's apples and apples comparisons and things that you've got to think about. So, there. Uh, but yeah, let me let me jump in and let me say that I think that um, Adrian there hit on something important that if you have the 50th best ranked golfer in Australia by the tour- we talked about the men's side. The women's side is also very important, uh, and it's part of what we're representing as well. But if you, we want to take the 50th best um, male golfer, if they're not earning enough money to turn over their life to be able to do it again the next year, that person doesn't have the opportunity to become the 10th best golfer mm-hmm. in Australia and doesn't have the opportunity to become the best golfer or get on the European tour or get on the Asian tour or the PGA tour they can't fund themselves. They're at the mercy of people who decide where the funding goes. And all of a sudden, we start handing over the choice of who becomes the successful Australian golfers in part to subjective people instead of letting people compete and earn their own money to be able to go overseas and play. I think that's a much better system for unearthing talent. And I think it's 
part of the reason why we haven't seen a, an exponential growth in talent coming from Australia since 2000. Because hmm. the game is awash with money, not so much here in Australia, but globally the game is awash with money, isn't it, Brian? And in a world of disruptor golf leagues, and we're seeing two of them at the moment challenging the alpha dog in the room, the PGA Tour, what you're doing is not that and it's not related to that, but there does seem to be a lot of electricity bristling around golf and who should be getting what. What's your take on that global situation at the moment and where does an organisation like yours fit in and is there then scope, assuming you get it right and everything goes well for the association, is there scope for that to grow beyond just here in Australia where it started? Or All actually, of the disruptor leagues that come in from Aramco or Golf Saudi uh, and the interest in the Asian tour um, the strategic partnership between the PGA Tour and the European Tour, all of this stuff, uh, yeah, and to a lesser extent, the growth in the in the Australian events from previous season to this season, um, all of that is due to one simple fact, and that's people want to watch people play golf. Um, there is money to be made in professional golf because if there wasn't money to be made, if there wasn't value from the players' standpoint. If the players weren't creating something that people didn't want to invest in, none of this would be happening. Mm. So as far as I can see, all that does is further cement the importance of the players. Mm. And given that the players are the ones that create all the value at the tournaments, that should further cement the players' ability to have a seat at the table when it comes to dealing on the, the tours that they mm. play on. Of course, you've run in quickly to a notion then of putting the lunatics in charge of the asylum, Brighton. Would it be a good idea to have players running a golf tour, which is a very different job to playing golf? They're a symmetrical, synergistic Yeah, and that is decidedly not what we are trying to do here. Um, Our goal is a structural reform where, because the players are the ones who are uniquely positioned to do the best job at keeping tour management accountable, right? Because they are the ones that it affects the most. So I'm not, I'm not, and we're not suggesting that every decision should be made, uh, you know, through the players. That would be just a logistical nightmare. What we are suggesting is that the rules by which the management has to play by and the accountability structure comes back to the people who, uh, the tour succeeding or failing has the greatest effect on. Um, this is not to, this is not about an individual at the tour answering to me or to anyone like that. That's not what it's about. It's about the management and the players actually being in an effective working relationship with each other so that the tour can grow for everybody. Because if the tour quadruples in size, I would imagine that the salaries of the people who work for the tour also grow Um the purses grow, everything grows, the interest in golf grows, and we all win. Uh, at the moment, the players are sitting here waiting to be, waiting to be involved, looking for a take to take more ownership of their tour, and that's uh, crickets at the moment. Yeah, this will be on top here in a minute, Jimmy. There's some big concepts you've outlined in there. What that might that look like in reality, Brighton? What what can you write down on paper? We would like this and slip it across the table to Gavin Kirkman or somebody from the PGA and say this is what we want. 
I, I imagine the uh, better quality buffet in the place <laughs> is quite high. We haven't even got to the media tent yet. You want to get, get us little, on side, mate, you'll get... <laughs> those little individual pavlovas, yeah. you can get those, you know. <laughs> Made fresh good. every day. Yep. At the President's Cup, there was a chef in the media tent who would make stuff for you. It was the most amazing <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Anyway, sorry, Bryden. Look, um, I don't have a list of things to point to because that's not – it's not up to me. Um, we have a collective group of members who are shareholders in our organisation and it's going to be up to them to decide. I'm just a shareholder when it comes to that. Um, I, as co-president with Whitney Hillier, we work – for the board as officers, we also sit on the board. We're a startup company, so we have, uh, you know, we have crossovers. Um, but the board works for the players, uh, of, of whom are the shareholders. And so when it comes to deciding what's going to go on that, you know, request, uh, we're going to have an idea and we have expertise on our non-player director side as well. You know, I can't necessarily answer that question. All I can really say is that we just want more transparency we just want to be able to know what's going on so that we can have uh, a, a more direct involvement in the tour that we're playing on so just to clarify was this your idea bryden no it's it started it was born out of demi papadatis's frustration um and then it turned into a uh, a conversation between him him and, and joe sponholtz uh and then a serendipitous uh, round of golf the next day, me and Dimmy at the TPS Sydney event with Joe walking around. And then it, it just kind of grew from there that we could see the potential for what Australian golf, Australian professional golf could do. Um, and we didn't see uh, that potential being lived up to. And we saw the players not having a direct impact or a direct say in what's going on. And we wanted to, reconcile both of them with the formation of the Players Association, and we built it. And Joe Sponholtz, for those of us who aren't familiar with Joe, what's his background? So Joe Joe has too long of a resume for me to, um, you know, <laughs> do it justice here. But let's say Joe is uh, an American, he's from New York, um, spent a lot of time in sports law, uh, working with the NFLPA, the uh, NBAPA, MLBPA, all those main ones over there at the law firm that does all of their legal work in the States. Um, since moved to Australia, works as a business consultant. He's a partner in uh, Asia Pacific and also worldwide at LEK Global, um, a management consulting firm of the top tier. Uh, and he spent some time on the NRLPA board trying to help them reform um, their situation a few years back. And that's how he got to know Grace and NASA. And, and that's how that's the connection to dinner. To, to um, golf, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Joe is also a very keen golfer, although needs to practice. <laughs> Just to publicly get that in there, I'm sure his invoices Sorry, aren't. I'm sure his invoices aren't as long as his resume. Yeah, <laughs> there, Brian, <laughs> So, no problem. Jimmy, as I said, you've been around the game for a long time. Do players have legitimate gripes about this sort of stuff? We've had structures in place in golf that are developed over decades, and it's always been fairly established. The PGA and in America, the PGA Tour and in Europe, the European Tour, they put on tournaments and golfers go playing. Now, golfers complain. We establish that and that's as it should be. Is there legitimate things that Bryden's putting forward here to the way the structure works? Yeah, I believe so. Um, I think 
One of the things when we're looking at it locally here is we're in a very different situation than what we've got with the PJ Tour, the European Tour. Which is a, well, the PJ Tour is a player owned and run organisation, technically, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, correct. The PJ Tour is completely for the players. It's a not-for-profit, in inverted commas, but it, it is run for the players. So is the European Tour. They're not part of the professional golfers associations of those areas. In this country, that's different. The PGA of Australia runs the PGA Tour of Australasia. So As well, that's right. Yeah, so they've got commitments to vocational members and tournament playing. Two members. customer bases. Correct. Often with different needs. With very different <laughs> needs. Some straddle the lines, but very different needs. And, and, and you get complaints from rank-and-file PGA members about where their money goes to. Mm-hmm. But... When that not, not is not necessarily a huge problem as well if it's done properly, and there is separate tour staff than there is vocational staff at the PGA. But I think the guys and girls have a have a genuine sort of a point here that last year I heard a number of players saying I'm not going to go to tour school because there's no schedule next year set. So why would I fork over three grand to get status on a tour that doesn't have any events scheduled? That makes a lot of sense to me. Like applying for a job with 3,000 others that when you get it, there might not actually be any work. Correct. <laughs> and and, pay, and paying for the privilege. And, and now it's turned out that, and the PJ will point to this, and it's, it's in the story I wrote, that there's more events now on the schedule than there was pre-pandemic. Yeah, that's fantastic. But at the time, how you, I, I, for my own personal thing, I, I wouldn't invest $3,000 of my own to not be guaranteed any work coming back my way. That's a big outlay for someone not making a lot of money, but who could have a huge upside. So it is hard for people, I think, to separate what PGA Tour players make versus what PGA mm. Tour of Australasia players make. But there's enough things here, and, and speaking with Brighton a number of times for various different stories and the others involved, it is very reasonable. And the amount of players that I speak to regularly at friends or for stories that have said similar things over the years it, it strikes me as yeah they've got some very reasonable points here and it's worth the conversation and probably the conversation in the women's game in this country is different but it is aligned as well mm-hmm. um you know the announcement of the of the wpj championship is great but as someone said to me yesterday maybe that shouldn't be as big a deal as it is shouldn't we have already had that Possibly. Well, we could we could bog down in what we should. We could shoot ourselves to death, as Marge Simpson yeah. once said, but let's not do that. If religion is the opiate of the people, Bryden, money is the opiate of professional golf, we up until recently haven't heard much in the way of complaining from PGA Tour players, and understandably so. I think they went past the 100 players earning a million dollars in the season year before last, perhaps. So loads and loads of money. What's the difference here in Australia? We have traditionally punched above our weight in terms of players on the global stage. But our tour has never been in a more disoriented state than what we've seen in the last year. The pandemic has accelerated, as it has in other areas of life, something that was clearly brewing as a problem regardless for golf here in Australia. Professional golf, big-time professional golf, does not survive in this country without government help, and that can't be a healthy or sustainable situation. And look, I am am the furthest thing from a business expert, um, but I don't see a lot of hurdles as to why we can't have a, you know, fairly large scale successful tour um, in this part of the world. You know, we have quality of players uh, that are, I mean, just as comparable. I think people enjoyed coming out to watch, um, you know, some of the events at the start of the year, just as much as they came out to enjoy watching, you know, the, I mean, maybe not quite the president's cup, but still, the Australian Opens have passed, the Australian PGAs have passed. I don't think that people 
necessarily uh, care that we don't have uh, a marquee player here or there. The bulk of the good players in Australia are incredibly impressive. Mm. And people come out and watch them play and go and say, wow. And there's still, importantly, little kids watching saying, wow. Um, we, but we have the best golf courses in the world uh, in close proximity in this part of the world. We have stable governance. We have like all kinds of corporate uh, interests in sponsoring our tour, um, people that I've spoken to personally, and yet we don't have the tour. Um, we used to have a successful you know, thriving tour back in the late 90s, early 2000s that catapulted just numerous guys onto major tours. Yeah. You know, Michael Campbell, yeah, um, you know, Peter Lonard, Peter Senior, all these guys. Like they, they use that as a springboard to get into a, a, a major, um, major tours worldwide. And I don't see how our situation as a country has gotten worse than what it was in 2000. We're not a less important economy. We don't have less exposure. It's not harder to get your message out. It's not harder to get people here. Uh, nothing has been put in place that is a barrier to maintaining that success as far as I can see. Except the cost of is- the stars, Brighton. So Tiger Woods happened, and what really happened was Tiger happened, and it went from paying Greg Norman 300000 to come to Australia and bring them out like the Pied Piper to go and follow him down the fairways at Huntingdale to $3 million, and for a second-tier player, a million. So the price tag changed to host what's not just a golf tournament but a big event. What you're pointing to, what happened during the pandemic, was a revelation for the game and what professional golf has forgotten is golfers. Professional tours are guilty of that all over the world. They've forgotten that the real fans are people who play golf and they're the ones who came out to the TPS events down to Rosebud yep. here in Sydney, which were fantastic. And you're right, I think a lot of people remembered, wow, we used to go to the golf, it was fantastic and that's why. It looked like, it looked like professional it looked golf. like Professional golf, yeah. eating Rob Williamson's videos of it, the eighties. It, it didn't. It didn't need Jordan Spieth there. No, or that's, something. It still looked like that's professional exactly golf. Right. It's also pretty easy for Brighton to say people enjoy those events. He won two he of the things. Won, <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were a hoot. No. But that, that's that a real. Yeah. That is a reality, though, isn't it, Brighton? And that's something that I think the PGA in Australia here, or those who organise tournament golf, were blindsided by in that late nineties, early two thousands, because the costs went up almost exponentially, almost overnight. And I'm not sure how they could have necessarily got around that. The PGA Tour itself is struggling. They they no longer have an event in New York. The New York market is golfless for the PGA Tour. That's an unthinkable scenario just 10 years ago. But they can't find someone prepared to invest the coin for what they charge to put an event on in New York. So I think there's there's a lot going on there. And the, I appreciate what you're saying. schedules are really full too. Schedules incredibly full. There's, a, there's an awful lot to combat. I wonder whether Australia might need to accept a period of building something worthwhile for the longer term. This is something we've talked about. Crazy here. talk. This crazy talk about we had this debate about the Australian Open going ahead this year, which it ultimately didn't. Can we put on a worthwhile Australian Open with an all-local field? Fairly divisive question. How does that fit into what you're doing? Because really the players you're representing aren't the Adam Scott and Cameron Smiths and Mark Leishmans. They're doing okay. Thank you very much. So they may join your association, possibly. Um, because they're good guys, but yeah, look, it's a, it's a difficult it's a difficult question. I think there's two there's two points um, that need to be made. I mean, the first one is that uh, I would love to be able to know whether or not uh, there are significant challenges 
I would love to know what they are. I would love to know the strategies that have been put in place. I would love to have run those strategies past some of the intellectual firepower that's on our board. Um, but I can't do any of that because I don't have access to that information. Mm-hmm. And this so, is the problem. This is the problem you're trying the, to solve. And and this and this is the problem we're trying to solve first and foremost because and we have heard, I've heard personally that the players are the problem, that no one wants to watch us play, uh, that the money just isn't there. Um, and look, if that is truly the objective truth, uh, we'll have to accept that and get to work on solving. But I just do not believe that either of those things are true um, because I know that uh, Australian golfers are extremely talented. Um, I know that people want to watch us play. Uh, and I know from personal experience that there are big-time corporate people wanting to be involved. Uh I would like to see where the missing link is. And I think the unwillingness to share the transparency is telling. Um, but that's the main thing we're trying to change with the OGPA is we want, we don't want to feel like um, we're not here to, to, to do any kind of combative stuff. Well, we, we, we want to work with uh, the people that are, that are running the tour to help them solve these problems. Think it's been, I think it's fair to say that the four board members that we have, the non-player directors on our, our board, no one with their intellectual resume has ever been involved in Australian golf at a professional level. So I don't understand why these people are, are not being welcomed in with open arms. Probably because they've not got no links to Australian golf. You know what we're like with golfers. And there are up and downsides to having people from outside the game join in an administrative context or a business context. We know that. It's a both a fresh set of eyes. But golf is a very political game and business, and you kind of need to know what you're doing. You can make missteps very easily if you don't understand the game. And we've seen that plenty of times. Like, I think you had something you wanted to say there. I, I guess I can take a guess at why some tournaments don't come into being and it seems to me like there's a lot of factors like you know every, if every, unless everything lines up administrators are inclined to just lay down and like oh we're going to have to cancel and what is everything that needs to come up you need the the organization that has the commercial rights to the tournament to be happy with everything about it they need to have a naming rights sponsor lined up they need to have uh, the venue all lined up they need to have the transport and everything worked out in COVID that's no easy feat they, they need to understand that everything that they think a successful golf tournament represents is going to happen. There, there's this risk profile that it has to fit before they'll agree, yeah, let's go ahead with this tournament. And by that standard, you only end up with a couple of tournaments a year. Masters. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> true. You're going worldwide. But I was just thinking in Australia you only end up with a couple of tournaments at best. And then it's a few little upstart tournaments that will go ahead because they're willing to roll the dice. Their risk profile is much lower. So you get TPS series events happening because it's like it's something new. Let's try that. Um, but in time, those things as well will start to be evaluated on all of those criteria. Can we get a naming rights sponsor? Can we get X? Can we get Y? Does it fit in the schedule? That That's one of the biggest ones, I reckon. Without doubt. Um, is it inevitable at some point Bryden, that you your organisation will just say enough of that. We want to play. Let's organise a tournament, 
And at what point do you start to sort of cross over? Is, is that something you're going to be actively resisting? Or it, do you think it's something that could actually happen that you think to yourselves, we're going to start organising tournaments? We, we're professional golfers. We want to play. Yeah, so we are decidedly not a rival tour. Um, the caveat to that is that uh, is that golf presents a unique uh, opportunity as a sport for a players' association because we need an independent revenue stream so we're not dependent on our governing body or on our tour for existence to potentially work with the tour one day in putting on a talk. That would be fantastic. That's But that's a pie-in-the-sky dream uh, for us that is many, many years away. Um, I think that once we can establish a working relationship uh, with the tour, I think that the expertise that we can bring to the table, I think it's it's a it's a no brainer for us to um, to help the tour in any way that we can, and that's not limited to helping them source whatever they whatever they need help with. Jimmy, I think I, I think one of the things that when Logue talks about those things that need to go into making an event. It, it strikes another chord as to why these guys are on the right track. That you talk again to Brian and talk Stay about that microphone, would you please? Don't make me come over there. Apologies. Thank you. Okay. They uh, <laughs> they talk about the players of the product, which is very true with professional golf. Now the Australian Open's not going ahead, and on the surface, the main reason was they can't get the players they want here. So, isn't there a contractual arrangement in place there though about X number of top twenty players in the world? That's something to do with their sponsorship. I think, there's, I think there is a lot more elements to it, but I would have thought you could organise some sort of thing to get it on to because it's losing value to the sponsors of the future events by being cancelled again. We can all, I think, agree on that. But Golf Australia has effectively agreed that the players are the product because we don't want to put an Australian Open on without the players that we want. Now, these are different players talking about that they're the product, but it's it's an admission from a governing body that that's the case. So I think I think that's a really important point to what the OGPA wants to get across is that the players are the product, mm-hmm. but it's not the individual players. It's not Brighton McPherson. It's the players that tee it up every single week in all those events. Uh, but they they certainly have a good point, but I, I think the other important thing is that I, Brighton will admit that TPS, like Adrian talks about, putting on something different, giving it a try, the OGPA will get behind and say, hey, there is good things happening here. It's not all bad. It's not all doom and gloom. So they just no. want to get involved in that. Look, we are we are straddling the, the middle between um, players who have, call it, a uh, overextended list of complaints um, and people that have, uh, you know, no complaints at all we're coming in and basically saying, look, let's actually get together. It's not about an individual. It's not about me. It's not about James. It's not about Whitney. It's like it's about a group of players getting together to actually do a few things in each other's collective interest. Um, and it's a structure that exists in every other sport. Uh, and it has helped every single one of those sports grow since its inception. Um, and we don't see how it can't help golf in Australia grow as well. What's player input look like at the moment, Bryden? The moment uh, we have the Tournament Players Council, mm-hmm. um, of which there are four voted, uh, you know, elected members. 
Um, and then there are three. Uh, so we have Roger Davis, who is the chair mm-hmm. of, the, of the of the board of the PGA. He also chairs the Tournament Players Council. Ian Baker-Finch, who is a player director or a director of the PGA, also sits on the Tournament Players Council. And Terry Price, I'm not 100% sure on Terry's elected status. Um, but And then we have the four player members who – uh, I understand a few of them ran unopposed at the previous selection. Um, and the Tournament Players Council, uh, and I think that fact that uh, they ran unopposed, uh, you know, talks to, speaks to some of the apathy amongst players to be involved in that Tournament Players Council. Um, Which was the next point I was going to ask was how much of this is, how much of the, the blame for this situation lies at the feet of the players. Perhaps It's a very individual pursuit. Collectively is not something you often do in golf. It's not. It's not. But I think structurally I think it, we can improve our sport uh, enormously um, because the – See, the issue is is that the Tournament Players Council is elected by the players mm-hmm. and then they make decisions. Is that a popularity contest or is that something where players go out and campaign and say, this is what we'll do if we go on the Players Council, these are the things we'd like to talk about? Look, I think that is something that would spring out of an environment where there was competition to get on the Tournament Players Council. Yes. But at the moment, there is no competition, so we don't have that at all. Um, we don't have any campaigns, elections, anything like that. And look, to be fair, we don't need that because that's just more politics. We don't need more politics. Um, what we envisage is that with big decisions that affect the players, the playing group, the tour management would have to consult the playing group. Okay. Bryden, I, um, so that we've got you know, PGA, WPGA, T, TPC, I'm going to call it the TPC, the Tournament Players Council, uh, the OGPA now. I've got in front of me on my computer here the chart of USB standards over over the years. Uh, As in the thing you plug into your computer? Yep, yep. It goes you from... Are so you, are so <laughs> you are so strange. You are so strange. It goes from USB 1, you've got type A, type B, mini A, mini B, micro A, micro B, USB 2, got a little bump to 480 megabytes, type A, type B, mini A, USB 3.1, Gen 1, 3.1, Gen 2, 3.2... Thunderbolt 2 with USB, it goes on. USB A, B, C, we all know. Thank every single that was fantastic. Every really single enjoyed. every single they form international councils to come up with these standards, and every single one of those councils thought they were forming the one true USB standard. Mm. And yet here we are with all of these bloody things still sticking out of our computers. And it's all a mess. Like you go from 14, everyone says, oh, we've got 14 standards. You know what we need? One standard to unify all of those 14. You know what we end up with? 15 standards. 15 standards. So He makes a good point, doesn't he, Bryden? What can we learn from other sports? Does he? <laughs> <laughs> he? He does because this is what committees do, don't they? And effectively, once you start to get all Best intentions. All what, they all had the best intentions. And all noble. What can we learn from other sports? You mentioned Joe, who's uh, been right there from the start with this, and his former involvement with the NRL. I can recall, even though I'm not an NRL fan, Lots of chatter about how this would destroy the NRL, the players taking it, you know, the lunatics taking over this time, all those. What can we learn from other sports and how that, that transition has played out? The players um, group has been around in NRL for, what, 10 years, something like that? So I think that, look, and again, I'm not that well-versed on the economics of the NRL, but I believe since the players group has come along, the sport has improved in its, in its market standing. 
in Australia. That's about as deep into the the specifics as I'll go because it's all I know. Um, but I think when you look at players' associations and players' unions, because you know, they're different depending on which sport you're in, you have to look to the United States. Um, and you have to look at the impact that the first ever uh, players' union, which was the NFL Players Association, had on the sport. Um, all of the negative fear-mongering from the, uh, the owners and the NFL saying that you can't possibly pull this off, it won't work because there are 32 teams, we're all with different owners and sponsors and we have a, a league that as, as well, there's a 33 entities that you've got to deal with. It's too complicated. There's no way you can organize a system like this. You know, and then the, the other classic is that, well, the NFL is charged with growing the game at a, at a grassroots level and, and we need money to do that. That's why we can't pay the players their fair share. There are excuses after excuses after excuses. Since the 1970s, that structure has been in place in the United States in the NFL Players Association. And the slew of players associations that followed, I, I'll get the order wrong, but with the NBA, the MLB, the NHL, then the major league soccer, and then you've got, and then from there you've got the Premier League soccer, European League soccer, Champions League soccer, all of it. There is a reason every other sport does this. Uh, the, the relationship between the players and their club is a little bit more explicit in those other sports. They are direct employees. They are treated like employees. They're not allowed to go and play for other clubs. Functionally, in Australia, we are in a similar situation with our tour. We don't have another tour to choose to play on. And I don't think that Australian citizens should be forced to leave their home country in order to pursue a living in the sport that they love playing. I think that they should be allowed to do that in their home country and have a say in how that sport is run. I think that there's a there's a possibility um, that a movement like this uh, could turn into yet another committee, but not our movement because ours is organised. As Jimmy said, we have expertise on our side, and we're looking at it from a thirty thousand foot structural standpoint, not a laundry list of complaints yeah. standpoint. Jimmy Clates often says about golf, if you were going to start again and draw it up, there's no way you'd have three of the four majors in America. It makes no sense. Is this a similar thing what Bryden's talking about? If you were to start again and say, right, we know how golf's looked for all this time. If we were going to start again, would you design it the way it is at the moment in Australia? Because it is very different globally, obviously. Probably not. You'd, you'd probably come up with something different here. Because mm. uh, we had the split between the PGA and the PGA Tour for quite yeah, a while correct. here in Australia, yeah. and of course it ultimately failed is a strong word to use, but ultimately they re-emerged because there, were just, there was too much overlap to make it worthwhile having separate departments. Yeah, and, and all of the people that talk about why can't we go back to the, the tool we had in the 80s and 90s, well, we can't just... Well, with right the, here, Jimmy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we, we can't just... For the put, same reason Logree can't regrow the hair in the right. 80s and 90s, things change. It, it's, just, it's just not going to work for us to just put on the same events and do that sort of stuff. So you probably wouldn't do things exactly the same that, that you know we have done in the past. And I think Clates himself with Jeff is showing that with the Sandbell Invitational. It's a very interesting experiment. That is, is that idea that Jeff has had, and I've spoken about it constantly, that... Put on the best event and see what happens. See what happens. And, and that's what you're doing. And, and to what Bryden's talking about with players' associations and whether you would do it differently, 
in this country, the professional golfers that play here have no leverage against the tour. The tour has all the hand to give it a George Costanzaism. They they are in complete control here. And the players don't have leverage because they're independent contractors. No one expects them to come together. And the, the concept of, a, of the TPC with the four elected players is, again, something that... that and, and the PJ will say to you if you discuss the OGPA with them that that is still the way they want to interact with the players is through the TPC. The idea that you're picking four of however many hundred tour players to represent you, who that week, if he's in a meeting telling you how he's going to look after you and then you're going to go out and he's going to try and beat your brains in on the golf course, that's a little bit backward to me as well. So It works in America, though, because there's plenty of money. Well, that's right. <laughs> and everybody's happy. Exactly. Nobody wants to complain. The guys sitting there with Rory as the chair of their players' committee aren't sitting there realistically begrudging anything that Rory's doing for them mm. because his interests are not a bit driver length thing yeah it's pretty well, upsetting for. well pretty upsetting for one or two but there's there's it's a different dynamic so here we we have a different dynamic very much. golf in this country is different than it is anywhere else so the model of just borrowing the pga tour european tour lpga whatever isn't going to work and, and the tours have shown a willingness to not do that we've led with things like vic opens and the tps events are fantastic i, I really are. really, yeah. really you can't can't commend them enough for that. This idea with the WPGA Championship again, it's it's good because good. for for example, if you if you're talking about the players, it's only 120 men. That actually will get every player on the PGA Tour of Australasia with a category into the field, right? Which then allows for the 24 player women's field as well. That's that's good thinking. You know, that, mm-hmm. kudos to the PGA Tour of Australasia and the WPGA. They've got it right, but. That's by doing something different. We can't just do the same thing. We can't just... We we need to look at things differently and perhaps giving the players a, a voice is the way. You know, I, I don't claim to know. I, I don't work for the PJ Tour of Australasia. I don't work for the OGPA. I, I'm a, Who are you a mouthpiece for, Jimmy? For golf. Who are you shilling for? <laughs> but I, I'm, I, I, I see the news value in the OGPA mm, and what's sure. going on, which is to be honest, greatly influenced by the way it's been dealt with so far by the organising bodies. But I, I think there is there is validity to what these guys are saying. Uh, I think you're exactly right. Golf in this country needs to be looked at differently. And given this is the first Players Association, if we give them the first voice, maybe it will benefit every single person from Gavin Kirkman to the pro at Lane Cove Golf Club. As long as Lane Cove survives, which it, it may not. Well, that's a whole other issue. It, it, it do, The reaction from the PGA has not been warm and welcoming, Bryden. Um, I'm imagining you didn't expect it to be warm and welcoming, as the PGA Tour is not being warm and welcoming to the Premier Golf League coming and telling them, hey, we've got an idea how you can do this better. Do you foresee that we'll get beyond that hurdle? It's not unexpected. The entrenched power holders rarely are championing the disruptor or the the change that comes along, they're happy with the system as it is. Do you foresee that changing? Is there anything as yet that suggests to you that perhaps there's scope there for for more discussion? Yeah, so when it comes to this issue of um, whatever you want to call it, recognition uh, between the the tour and, and the Players Association, as far as we're concerned, we are focusing on our own actions. Mm-hmm. We're focusing on making sure that we're doing things honestly, transparently, that we're representing men and women equally, that we're championing 
championing just the collective voice of players, that we're not overreaching, um, and that we're being consistent in our messaging and staying on the right side of the sentiment here. And then we go out and we speak to people such as yourselves or, you know, we have articles written and things like that and we get the word out. We talk to other players, more importantly, and eventually the chips fall where they fall. And the people that are truly supportive of the players end up coming with us into a new future. And the people that are not supportive of the players, truly, they expose themselves as not being truly supportive of the players. What has been the reaction of the players to you so far? How many have signed on? I'm not asking for, obviously, you know, if you can't say, then you can't say. But what's been the reaction? So I I can't say um, because we have a level of, fear amongst our members, uh, yep. which is itself, I think, quite telling of the culture that's been created. Um, we have a large number of people. We could, we are approaching being able to put on a full field tournament okay. with our members. Um, and I think that uh, amongst the members, our members are extremely excited. There's a, there's a whole other group of people, as there always is with things like this. There are people that are willing to jump right in right away. Um, there are people that are, you know, take some convincing. Um, there are some people who are waiting to see, and there are people who are outright sceptical. Every single one of those people are equally important to us. There's no points for being first in except for getting a lower membership number. Um there's no, there's, you're not going to be treated any differently if anybody's listening to this that is worrying about what to go on. We have a diversity of, of age, we have a diversity of experience, we have a diversity of men and women. We also have a diversity of risk tolerance amongst our members, and that is perfectly acceptable. Um, everybody, regardless of how involved they want to be or not, is an equal as far as the OGPA is concerned. So even if um, you lay up or go for it, you're welcome in the OGPA. If you lay up or go for it, you're welcome in the OGPA. Maybe you just throw down next tag one. Um, and th- this is honestly one of the things that makes it so unique uh, in golf because golf has always been reliant on the individual. We've always been reliant on the white knight, the person to come and save our tour. First it was Greg Norman, then it was this new administrator, then it was this mm-hmm. person, then it was this person in charge of golf Australia. Then it was this person in charge of golf Australia. It's, and we all just pet all of our hopes on this next person. And Adrian, I'll tag this back to your uh, comparison of different USBs. I think we're doing that with single person, uh, you know, change makers in our sport in Australia. I think we've done it for a long time and it obviously does not work. What the OGPA is about is about removing that removing the singular importance of the individual and putting it all on the collective and creating a structure where people can actually work together. Um, That's what we're doing here, and that's why it's going to work. There's always scepticism about altruistic motives, Bryden, as you'd expect. What about for you personally? Why? You are clearly taking a bit of a risk. You are the front person for this organisation, and as such... One of the front people. One of, but um, there's a risk in that, isn't there? There's certainly Absolutely. there'll certainly be some blowback from that. So why do it if not to benefit Bryden McPherson? 
my largest concern with the game of golf and the structure of professional golf since I turned professional has been the individuality and the lack of uh, community impact, real community impact that you can have as a professional golfer. Um, call it somewhat selfish, but I believe that my uh, I'm using my own personality and my own personal traits to further something that will benefit generations of professional golfers after me while decidedly not putting my name on it. Um, I'm an advocate. I am an officer. I'm a board member. Uh, that is as much it, as it has to do with me. Um, it has just as much to do with all the other officers, all the other board members, and frankly, all the other members. Everyone is the same here. We're all working together. Uh, it's a heavy lift, but if we can lift it, it's going to create a structure that I believe will like revolutionize uh, professional golf. We've kind of touched on it a couple of times, I guess. The whole notion of professional golfers' entertainment has always relied on the big stars, the celebrities, the Tigers, the Greg Normans, the Jack Nicklauses, the Arnold Palmers. None of those people can succeed, and we don't give this enough thought, do we, without the supporting cast. I'm not a movie guy, but I'm sure Logue would agree. Every great movie has had a great supporting cast. One or two big stars, but a great supporting cast. What we're really talking about here is the supporting cast. Yeah? Uh, I guess if you want to talk in strictly financial terms, yes. Yeah. If you want to talk about how many cars they get to own, yes. I think when it comes to having a say, I think maybe we are taking a little bit away from the, um, you know, the big stars and giving it to the, you know, the supporting cast, as you say. I would obviously never say that, um, but because I believe everyone's just as, just yes, as it, uh, important as everyone else. It sounds disparaging, but, but it's, I think the point is... Of course. Yeah. But yeah, no, you're right, though. But the, and, and, you know, we're doing this as a structure, as a process to grow everything, to help everything grow. And if everything grows, those lead actors, to continue your metaphor, will benefit even more. So I don't understand why they, don't, why they aren't just as important in this as everybody else. If if we accept that celebrity is overvalued in golf, and I think it is, it, probably the easiest thing to do is always to go to the best known players. If you are heading one of Australian golf, well, that's, there's only two. You're either James Sutherland or Kevin Kirkman, aren't you? Let's not pretend we can get around. The easiest thing to do is say, well, we spoke to the players. We spoke to Adam Scott and Mark Leishman and Cameron Smith, and Tom uh, Cruise, and Minwoo. What? Tom Cruise. I was I, sorry. I was yes, ending your uh, movie analogy thing. Okay. <laughs> 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 I've got no idea what you're talking about. Is to is to go and and say, well, we spoke to them, and this is what they say, and I, and they do. I know they do. I know they ask Adam Scott's opinion on stuff, and Jason Day, and and those name high profile players. Do they get back from them a view that's broad enough? Do you think, Bryden? Adam Scott's world is very different to yours, isn't it? In fact, I don't think he's won the New South Wales Open, which is a strike against him. <laughs> clearly, <laughs> or the amateur. Or the amateur. That's he exactly. State he never opens. won the amateur. That's I don't think exactly he's won right. any state opens. Yes. Thanks, guys. You're making me blush. <laughs> so, look, I I think that the the worldviews of those guys uh, uh, vary, um, and some of them have a stronger connection to Australian golf than others. Uh, I think Adam is one of the best uh, we've had in a long time um, with helping guide and support Australian golf. Uh, you know, to do everything that he can. 
Um, the problem is, is that it shouldn't be up to him, right? It really shouldn't. It really shouldn't be up to him. He should be. Uh, he should be supporting the tour with his golfing ability. Uh huh. Yeah. He could probably uh, start in a movie as well. So. <laughs> he could probably, cross over, couldn't he? He'd, he'd he could do, do both pretty, of those analogies. Yes, very. <laughs> set up a pretty big opening the, weekend, like, I think. You know, and and this is this is kind of, I guess, the the crux of the issue is that why are we relying on Adam Scott? Adam Scott never went to business school. Uh, I mean, Adam Scott couldn't write you a licensing agreement. No. He's a college dropout, Adam, isn't you know, he, in fairness? Adam, uh, you know, so am I. I'm loving this. I couldn't, <laughs> loving. I couldn't, like, I, I couldn't write a contract. I couldn't do any of these things. I can't formulate a decade-long sponsorship accruement strategy. Mm. I can't do any of these things. Isn't it? Neither can Adam Scott, neither can Jason, neither can Cam, neither can Leash. None of these people can. So my question is, why are they asking them? Aside from their maybe their input on maybe getting a, a connection to a sponsor or two, or whether or not they'll play or whether or not they'll do a junior clinic on the Tuesday, why? Why is it up to these people? Shouldn't it be up to the experts in charge of running our tours to do all this? Shouldn't they be financially literate? Shouldn't they be savvy in business? Um, shouldn't they be experts in their field? Uh, that they don't need to barely even consult their own administrative team, let alone professional golfers on the other side of the world. That, to me, seems like an issue with our tour, not an asset. Yeah, that's a that's a compelling case that you make. The experts like the tournament directors, like Mike Clayton, for example, who's now a tournament director. Every, <laughs> and every opportunity I get to mention that, I can't help. But... Uh, but do it. The last I thing look I was forward gonna... to getting my tea times on posted notes. Yeah. <laughs> good luck reading the handwriting. Yeah, good luck, at, good luck at going to the correct address. Are you playing the Sandbelt uh, Invitational? It's going to be a fabulous weekend there, I think. Absolutely. I'll yeah. be the first one there. Yeah, fabulous. It, uh, it should be really good. You, you mentioned before, and I think you're probably right in a lot of ways, and it's probably why those high-profile players get asked by the administrators, oh, who can you put us in touch with, who are sponsors and all the rest of it. Uh, what can players bring in terms of uh, – you, you mentioned, you know, lots of people who'd have an interest in investing in golf and perhaps golf tournaments that perhaps aren't spoken to by the tours. How do you – where do you come across those people? How many of them are there realistically? And what happens when you put them in touch with the tours? Because PGA here in Australia certainly has a certain business structure which doesn't always appeal to potential sponsors who start negotiations but don't go on with it. I would love to be able to comment on the business strategy structure of the PGA, but I don't know what it is uh, because I can't should, get should, the information. Should I Google it, or are you saying I won't be able to find it? <laughs> uh, interesting. Look, I, th I think that I think that there is a if there is a realistic market for um, you know call it secondary sports in Australia being every sport except for AFL, yeah. um, then there is a market for golf. If there is a, if there are banners around an NRL uh, pitch that say that have various sponsors rotating through so that they can be on TV, I don't see why seven or eight hours of coverage over two days uh, on golfers' billboards and flags and flashing on screens why there isn't the same appeal there. Given that our sport is just as popular, if not more popular than those other sports as far as participation oh, goes. And also global recognition yeah. goes. Everybody knows what Royal Melbourne is. Everybody knows what Kingston Heath is. A lot of people are getting to know what Barnboogle is. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people are getting to know what my home club, Peninsula Kingswood, is. So 
why can't we reconcile these two things? And if it is being attempted to be reconciled, why aren't they telling us about it? I think I think one of the things as well that when it comes to sponsorship with golf tournaments, I, I know someone very well who sponsors a WBBL cricket team. He knows he doesn't get that much out of his signage that's up on there, but part of it is that he goes along to the games, he's involved in it all. Well, people sponsoring a golf tournament can play in the Pro-Am. They can actually participate alongside the pros. Well, There's no gross. Pro-Am for the NRL no. Grand Final. That's and just not going to work. If so, there was, you'd have a lot of very hurt sponsors yeah, on exactly. that Grand Final. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, look, you don't get to take Lewis Hamilton's car for a hot lap at the F1. Yeah. Uh, I don't reckon right? you touch Rory's driver either if you're playing the Pro-Am with him, but that's a whole different issue. <laughs> unless you're that guy who wandered... Uh, <laughs> unless, you're Dan- unless you're Danny Lee and it's Victor Hovland's yeah. driver, then it's another story. Oh. Did he break it? Broke it he last broke week, it. yeah, on Wednesday afternoon. Well done, Danny. Danny good on yeah. him. And got his card back, and good on him. Yeah. And, and, and had a shot at the New Zealand media saying, oh, they were all over it when I lost my card, not to mention that I've got a pack, <laughs> which was, uh, <laughs> he, needs, he needs a bit of understanding in man bites dog versus dog bites man and why one is news and the other isn't. Golf journalists yeah, are just a miserable, bu- miserable bunch. That's we all. are a miserable bunch. That is our, it's our lot in life. Well, Brian, it's a really interesting, I'm not surprised that you're a part of this. And in terms of its, in ter- and I would mean that in a in a really positive way. In terms of its potential success, it would be very easy for this to become divisive uh, and problematic. I feel like you're doing a fabulous job of not making it about that. Uh, and I hope that it uh, that you you get some sort of a seat at the table because there can't be too many people with input. Golf in this country, in particular, has been its own worst enemy in so way in so many ways. And one of the mistakes we make is we try to make everything to do with golf about anything but golf. And that'll be really interesting to see how this Sandbelt Invitational unfolds because it's nothing about an event. It's ironic that you've got the Norman Asian Tour Saudi League PGL thing happening, which is all about growing the not golf part of golf, the event idea, versus this thing happening in Melbourne, which is very much just about the golf. And the interest in that will be uh, really interesting to sort of watch and see what happens. But. Best of luck. Thanks for coming on and talking. I hope you'll come back one day, and I hope things move forward. Certainly, it's not going to stop from here, I'm sure. So there will be further events and whatnot. Uh, and best of luck at the Sandbelt Invitational. How's your playing schedule looking coming up? Because, of course, aside from all this, you've got to work on your chipping, your putting, <laughs> your pitching, and your, right. your, your iron play. Uh, how's all that looking, and what is the schedule looking like for you? Look, I'll be playing the full Australian schedule, including uh, the larger programs and the ones that fit in. Um, the invitational events, I will be at all of them. You got two to because defend. Because I love well, you? Yeah. Because I love playing golf in Australia. Yeah, and you got two to defend. Um, Are you done with overseas, Bryden? Are you done with overseas now? You've been out there a long time. No, no. no uh, I've been batted around by professional golf overseas, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I still, I still love the game. I still love competing, uh, and I still had my. Uh, my mouth open the whole time I was playing at the Omega Masters this, uh, you know, back in August and just, you know, enjoying every second of it. So, no, I still want to be over at the big events playing. Um, but, you know, my wife and I relocated back to Melbourne and, and this is our home now. And uh, one of the reasons that I moved back was to find a way to have a measurable positive impact on Australian golf. And I searched through a few things, tried a few other things, but I think, uh, this OGPA may be it. Yeah, well, fabulous. And there's a lot of people, if they said that, I wouldn't believe, but I do believe it from you. So, as I said, best of luck with <laughs> it. You. Whether you're right or wrong, I know you've got the best interest of the game at heart, and that's the most we can ask of people. Thanks for having a chat Always. today, mate. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Logue, good to have you and your USB and Tom Cruise analogies 
whatever else it was that you brought to us today. Thank you for that. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Jimmy, uh, great work on this. We'll put the link in the show notes where we like to Jimmy's story about the uh, To Jimmy's story. GPA. There's also the OGPA.com website. Right. You're on Twitter, merchandise you can get, uh, <laughs> We're on Twitter at the underscore OGPA and we are on Instagram at the OGPA as well. Oh, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Not so to be confused with and- the 80s rap group. Uh, <laughs> There's no I think I you'll be able to discern the difference. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the quite different profiles. You can always have a little splinter group. I'm just saying. <laughs> like, you've got the hoodies on the website there. It's just. Ooh, I'm They're a- very nice. Yeah. I'll uh, get myself a hoodie. Uh, good on you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you, Jimmy. My pleasure. Look forward to it again next time. Once you've mastered that mic, you'll be invited back. Uh, that's it for Good Good episode. I can't remember what number it is. 90-something, whatever it is. Uh, The next one will be one number more than that when we come back to do it all again next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.